Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. And now, let's break the mold. Hello, Breaking the Mold loyal listeners. It is me, Evan Roth, your host, joined by my brother, special guest co-host, Daniel Edward Roth. Got the call. I was excited to be offered the opportunity to yeah. come back. Yeah. You actually didn't, didn't take the call. It came through your assistant who refused to actually like forward me on to you, even when I told her uh, that I knew your middle name. I actually thought I was coming to a lunch with <laughs> someone today. I didn't realize yeah. this was the studio where we do the podcast until I sat down and put the headphones on my ears, and then you showed up. And there was no food. And there was no food. That was only at the moment that there was no actual something to put in your mouth that you realized, oh, geez, I guess I'm the special guest co-host here. I guess so. I'm on the plate. I am the meal. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Delish. Dan, here we are, episode 16 Listeners, you're in for a treat today here on episode 16. Joining us here in the Breaking the Mold studios shortly will be Karen Seidman Becker, beloved to us frequent travelers. She is the CEO of Clear. That's the company that fast tracks you through airports, stadiums, concerts, you name it. Uh, Dan, I've enjoyed my experience as a now four-year member of Clear, and I'm excited to get to meet the, the, the head honcho. The person who helps you make your flights. That's right. Or miss your flights, as usually is the case with you. M- miss, miss, miss them by less. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan, but but I do want to take a step back, and I'm, I'm invigorated by our last episode, episode 15. Um, you know, it, it was it was on infrastructure, um, and one of your role models listened to that episode, um, that being Donald Trump, and he uh, uh, after. Uh, listening immediately called for Infrastructure Week. He was so moved by what we talked about. And I think that today's business topic, um, after Trump listened to it, will probably have a similar effect. I can see that. We're, we're moving the world. I mean, we're having an effect on domestic policy. The topic, CEOs uh, of especially big companies. And the debate is what latitude should they have to air their personal perspective, their values with the world, regardless of whether it's aligned with with their company. It sounds a little dry, I'll give you that, but this is coming straight from the news. Let's kick up a little bit of the production value here, Dan, of BTM, because it's already so high, but let's see if we can take it one step further. We've got a little ditty here from Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan. And if, you know, if this administration can make breakthroughs in taxes and infrastructure regulatory reform, you know, we have become the most, one of the most bureaucratic, confusing, litigious societies on the planet. It's almost an embarrassment being an American citizen traveling around the world and listening to the stupid shit we have to deal with in this country. And, you know, at one point, we all have to get our act together or we won't do what we're supposed to do for the average Americans. Now, that was not just Jamie talking to his staff. It was said in the most public of forums. Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan CEO, said that. That was on an earnings call. Uh, I mean, that's, that's everyone in, in, the, in the world, or maybe at least those sort of in financial circles, were listening to that. And 
it just sounded like he'd had enough. There was nothing prepared about that. He just was 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 ready to rant. You know, it's funny coming from Jamie Dimon, certainly from a gigantic bank that you know he's a CEO of. But don't forget, he was also highly considered to be our next Treasury Secretary. Certainly would have been that if Hillary had won. But this is not about excitement. This is there's plenty of ways to motivate employees other than you know, and it, it, it motivate all employees other than just having a in Jamie Dimon's case, a political perspective. There are in companies like JP Morgan. I'll give you another example. Howard Schultz, right. okay? CEO of Starbucks, uh, you know, he recently stepped down as CEO of Starbucks. Um, took kind of Jamie Dimon kind of one step further, which is he said in response to Trump's um, immigration ban that he was going to hire 10,000 immigrants to work for Starbucks. If Starbucks employees represent the U.S., which granted is a huge leap, 40% of his employees looked at that action as an anti-Trump policy and disagreed with it. People still need jobs. If you work at J.P. Morgan, you might not agree with the fact that Jamie Dimon is calling for, you know, government to be higher functioning, but you're not going to quit your job if you don't agree with him. And his job is to make shareholders value increase. He makes shareholder value increase by having employees who feel motivated, who come to work and feel like they're working in a place that they believe in. And so you have, let's say in the situation, I think that what goes hand in hand with this is that you have to be a CEO who stands up for what you believe in, that you have to, I think you should need to be vocal about it. And you also have to build a workforce, an environment inside that lets people air their views no matter what their views are. So I think those those two have to go in hand. The other part I would say about this is that it is we are in a transparent era. There is you are expected to be if you want to get your voice out there, if you want to get your message out, you have to find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to do it by doing bland corporate, um, having bland corporate messages. Jamie Dimon now becomes even more uh, someone that you want to listen to and hear what they're going to say because you know he's going to have something important to say. Howard Schultz draws massive crowds. Uh, Mark Benioff, you know, very outspoken for and talking about all kinds of areas that he thinks Salesforce.com has to go to, talks about the economy, talks about politics. He said at one point that he thinks CEOs are a new political uh, uh, class, that they are, that there's a Democrats, Republicans, CEOs, he said this last year. I think there's something to that. The business leaders have to be willing to stand out there, say what they believe in. You're going to find out anyways, and I think you'll attract a certain kind of employees who understand that their voice they, they get to follow someone they believe in or they get to follow someone who at least says what they believe in and then they're encouraging yeah. others to do the same. This must be hard for you, just, just you know, being wrong so often. <laughs> it's, so let's, in your scenario, all yeah. the CEO's role is to speak their mind, to motivate the employees. Which employees do you think are motivated based on Howard Schultz's views of immigrants? I think, and anti-Trump. Yeah. So now what you're creating is an employee base of those who are minions, your favorite movie, Despicable Me, <laughs> minions just thinking along the same way as the CEO. So now there's now there's no diversification in the workplace. There's no room for a contrasting view. If you work for Starbucks and you disagree with Howard Schultz, yeah. and you know that he is in always sharing his values on the world because he's being transparent according That's right. to you, yeah. where's your room to be able to express something different? If Howard Schultz has people like Howard Schultz working there, they're going to be a more loyal, more determined group of people who are going to work harder for you. And I think that's true whether you are running Chick-fil-A 
similar right, uh, right. Uh, other side of the of the aisle yeah um, if you are a libertarian CEO, you're going to find people that are that kind of believe in your views and are and love working there and don't leave maybe maybe they stay longer maybe they work harder i think it's a good i think it's a good thing to do it's interesting it actually would create a corporate culture that's even more absolute that doesn't have a lot of variability, which means if you're an employee, and I notice this especially with our millennial employees, mm-hmm. who I would I'd say are motivated based off of what well, what are is our corporate culture and our values. We we actually, despite this perspective, we actually just started a dinner where we're going to have 15 employees merge. Um, uh, eat with 15 refugees just to be able to share their stories. Look because, at you getting mm-hmm. into politics. All right, we're going to have to cut this out. Oh, my God. All right. Uh, but that you could actually see a case where if, you know, let's go back to Starbucks. It's safer than yeah. BBR, which is if you actually don't agree with the way in which kind of the corporate culture is, not just in the way that is, you know, what kind of benefits do I get, but is this really consistent with who I am? Well, that's okay. So I'll go to Pete's across the street and I'll go work as a barista there right. because they are more conservative. They've got a view which is more domestic oriented. That's could, what's going to happen? Could end up happening Polarization within the Starbucks, the uh, coffee community? Yeah, I, I hate to even talk about it. Uh, Dan Roth, uh, pleasure t- uh, discussing this with you. Our listeners are ready for, for something more. They're ready to hear from Karen Simon Becker, CEO of Clear. Uh, She'll be joining us here in a second. In the meantime, certainly share your thoughts with us on Twitter. Uh, Send us your emails, btmshow at icloud.com. Twitter handle here at Roth Evan. Dan? Dan Roth. Let me just remind you that you can also, and primarily, (laughs) share your ideas, thoughts on LinkedIn. Thank you. We'll be right back. You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show, or you can email us at btmshow at icloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. Welcome back, Breaking the Mold listeners. We're here for our discussion, as promised, with Karen Seidman Becker, CEO of Clear. For those few who don't know Clear, again, a reminder, it's the company that uses biometrics like fingerprints or eye scanning to move us through security checkpoints, whether they be at airports, stadiums, and, and beyond. Karen's background goes way back before the this industry to, as we've just learned, uh, driving large vans and giving out uh, swag uh, for radio stations. Uh, the maybe the more relevant part of her background was uh, working in risk arb for, for in risk arbitrage. For those that don't know the shortcut, Dan, uh, for Arnold and Bly Schroeder, uh, before going to go start her own hedge fund called Arians, growing that to a billion dollar fund. Uh, closing that and then bringing those same skills that she used as a specialist in turnaround to bring Clear out of bankruptcy in 2010 and then took over company's management uh, for the last seven years. Karen, welcome to the Breaking the Mold studio. Happy to be here. For the sake of uh, our audience, if you could, share us a little, little bit about Clear, what you do, what your aspirations are, Sp- uh, spend us some time t- talking to us about the company. Sure. So Clear is really about the frictionless life, about using innovation to build that bridge between strengthening security in our country and ultimately around the world and bringing consumers a frictionless experience, never stopping. 
I think maybe it stems from being a working mother of three and an incredibly impatient person, mm -hmm. right? You're trying to solve your own problems. And biometrics means you are definitely you. And so that strengthens security. Do you have access here? Can you come into a building? Can you come into the airport? Do you have a ticket? Should you be there? Um, and into a sports stadium. So it's strengthening security, but by being you are you, you're showing your driver's license, your you know your credit card, your passport, all the stuff, your key, a key card. You sort of ingest it all when you enroll in Clear, and you can use your fingerprints, your iris image. We're heading to face mm -hmm. for frictionless experiences in so many different places. So where where did that? Forget the company, but was it your dream always to be the CEO of Clear? As a little girl playing in the you know the the kiddie pool, was like yes, this is what I want. I think my dreams have continued to morph. Uh, <laughs> But passion makes me love whatever I'm doing at that time. So I think I wanted to start out as Phil Donahue. I used to have my hairbrush. And then headed into um, sports journalism. So I wanted to be a sports reporter. It's one of the reasons I went to the University of Michigan. And then I decided I loved the stock market and investing. And went to Wall Street and started in risk arbitrage, where I met incredible management teams and terrible management teams. Um, and was inspired by the best and learned from the worst of what I didn't want to do again and got exposure to all different kinds of companies. So aerospace and defense companies were big in the 90s. And um, I think after 9-11, it probably was my dream to build something that made a difference in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. That definitely changed me. And then I think having three kids and my big thing is I didn't want to die and have people say she picked good stocks, although I did want people to say it. At a minimum. At a minimum um, yeah. I wanted to be recognized for that, but I wanted to make the world a better place. And so I think there's probably a whole background to that, right? My family. Um, mm. But that was then my dream to build something that was sustainable, that made the world a better place. And I do like delighting people. So a consumer facing business that felt like the best of all worlds. I don't think our country in a post 9-11 environment can just be security out there. It has to be about people being part of the, the improvement. Hmm. If it weren't for 9-11, would it have been something else? Were you waiting for some seminal kind of mm, experience to change direction? No, I loved hedge funds. You know, I loved investing. Uh, I loved investing in homeland security companies, you know, post 9-11 and, and getting to know those management teams and understanding where they were going and what they were building. You know, I remember investing in Raytheon and they were doing the Patriot missile and what that meant. Um, so I, I think intellectual curiosity constantly drives you. So I loved building Arians, but during that, and that stood for art and science. That's my view of investing. It's highly quantitative, highly qualitative. Um, but during that process, you, I, I realized I loved building a company. I liked finding great people and developing them. We started uh, a philanthropy, so we gave away over a million dollars, and that was incredibly meaningful to me and our team, feeling like you were part of the making the world a better place. And then after 2008, when I saw some management teams who I thought knew significantly less than we did, and that was eye-opening for me, I said I wanted to go build something, go build a business, operate a business, always looking to get to the next level, and, and uh, I guess I'm sort of twitchy for always the next challenge. Hmm. What's been the biggest thing that you've learned? What, what's, what surprised you the most about going from building a hedge fund or being a stock picker to now running a company, expanding, getting contracts. I mean, did you? Is there anything that stands out that you said I did not realize it was going to be like this? And, and when, yeah, when to, to follow that, we. I can't think of a hedge fund manager 
who I think has developed the skills necessary to be an operator. They're good as investors, but I don't know if this, those skills, you made a case for why it was a natural transition. I actually think it's a very unnatural transition. Oh, I didn't say it was an easy transition. It was unnatural, but I'm always looking for the next challenge. So when we started Ariance, I was eight months pregnant, and the only money we could get was from um, Bill Miller from Leg Mason, who backed us and owned a piece of our company. And I, life as an underdog, my view is happiness is a low bar. And so proving people wrong and the same people who didn't want to give us money at 50 million coming in at a billion dollars because we had proved ourselves, there's a feeling there of like, yeah, we've done this. And then you look for the next challenge. Uh, and so when, I, I don't know, maybe ignorance is bliss. I had no idea how hard it was to build a company. And I thought, well, this is so great. I, you know, I kind of say thought people would throw rose petals at our feet. Like, we're strengthening security proactively. We're bringing technology. We're delighting customers. We're paying cities and mayors revenue share and clear. So we're generating revenues. We're creating jobs. Like, this is a win-win-win. Um, so I guess I thought it'd be pretty easy. Um, and I was wrong. So I think, I think life is about always getting better and always challenging yourself and always pushing yourself. And I've seen some amazing operators and spending time with those people. I'll just name some names. Like Ed Breen, who I knew from General Instruments was the president, then the CEO, then he was the president of Motorola. Then he came in after Dennis Kozlowski and turned around Tyco. Who would have thought Ed Breen could do that? And he did it masterfully and beautifully. Um, you know, you look at Michael Bloomberg, right? He didn't start off as that. None of these, under Jeff Bezos started off at D.E. Shaw. So I don't know that anybody really, Bill Gates, Zuckerberg, I mean, not putting myself in those people's categories, although that's something to shoot for. Um, but nobody really is naturally there. And I think it's about caring about people. And I think it's about believing and being passionate about what you do. And our, one of our um, values is being indefatigable, which was my college essay, um, which apparently didn't work with all the colleges. But um, you know, being persistent and tireless. And we were persistent and tireless at Arians, and we're persistent and tireless at Clear because we believe. And I think if you believe in what you're doing, and knowing that Clear does make the world a better place, and now over a million people are delighted by it, um, that just makes you keep going and reading a lot of books and talking to a lot of people and making an unbelievable amount of mistakes that are incredibly humbling and then waking up every day and thinking about how you're going to get better. I, I, isn't that natural leadership skills anywhere? Mm-hmm. Except if you look at where those, uh, pers your personality traits clearly get, you know, for a company that's you started, you took out a bankruptcy, you created kind of your own image. You can see how people would respond to that. But if you look at Uber as a cautionary tale, is there ever a point where you feel like you're, you're wearing a bracelet that says indefatigable and someone looks at that and says, that's not, I'm not willing to work 20 hours, an employee just reacts negatively to that? Yeah, so um, I don't think being indefatigable making, means working 20 hours. Um, one of the things I tell people is I'm a mother of three, and being a mom is my first job, and being the CEO of Clear is, you know, 1.001. It's, um, and I take a lot of pride in that. And so I'm really honest on who I am. I think the CEO of Uber was who he was. I don't know him well enough to talk to that. Um, but integrity, caring about the customer. I'm on the sideline at the soccer field Saturday at 2 p.m., and when a customer has a bad experience and they email me, I respond. And it's because I care. So I don't think it, being indefatigable doesn't mean that I don't leave the office. I put my kids on the school bus and I come to the office. 
Um, you know, I think that you can do it all. It depends what your all is. So, um, I look, I'm, I'm turning 45 in two months. I, I think you realize at some level you are who you are and to be honest about it. And I am my honest self and I'm proud of what we stand for and I'm proud of what we've built. And I'm also really honest about the mistakes and the challenges. So, Would you talk a little bit about that? What are some of the things you've done that, what did you intend for Clear to do when you took it out of bankruptcy and you started building it? And where are you now that's different than where the initial path was? So here's the good news. If you look at our initial uh, you know, PowerPoint or deck that we sent around to investors, it said that we wanted to be a platform, a secure identity platform, both in and out of the airport, providing secure, frictionless experiences for consumers no matter where they are. And that is what we are doing. So the mission has not changed. It has taken so much longer than I would have imagined, um, you know, to get a nationwide network and to be now built in, you know, in airports and now to be building outside of airports in sports stadiums and to build that frictionless curb to gate experience. So now we have a patent for biometric boarding pass. We're doing biometric lounge access, right? Just using your fingerprint and iris image from the time you walk into the airport to the time you get on the plane. Seven years, 84 months, 2,000 some odd days. That is a lot. And so, I mean, I look at my son who just turned 10 and I'm like, he was not quite three when we started this. Like, that's a long time. I didn't know how hard it would be, how much friction there would be, how much when we started people would go, why are you doing biometrics? And now everyone's like, oh, biometrics are the way of the future. And now they're like, how are you going to continue to lead it? So um, it's a lot harder. It's, there's a lot more friction, I think, in the stock market. You know, the market opens for business every day, and you can either pay up for the stock or not, but it's open to do business. Trying to get people when you're small buying a bankrupt company that um, can I say screwed? Screwed a lot Absolutely, of people? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, the S word. I mean, you know, it's, it's when, uh, you know um, when Danny listens to it, very, very fragile. Um, you, you know, uh, nobody's dying to give you a break. And so you really have to prove yourself. And proving yourself in this business meant three, four, five-year track record um, doing what you said you were going to do. And, but it's been this flywheel of we have incredible people who are now joining us, who are taking it to a different level, who are so much smarter than I am and have interesting experiences from different companies. So it becomes this sort of self-perpetuating thing, which is really exciting to be a part of. What, what was the low point? When did you think it just wasn't worth the time? If I were to look at my email, my 3.30 in the morning email chains to our uh, president and my longtime business partner, Ken, would probably be in the summer of 2013 or 14? 13? 14. 14. Um, we had some challenges, um, you know, some people in different positions, not within our company, who were actively betting against us and trying to make it really hard for us. And, uh, you know, trying to suss out where rumors are coming from hmm. and get to the bottom and disprove them takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and can be very distracting and very discouraging. And that's when the word indefatigable, indefatigable, again, it's not that 20 hour of the day, it's believing in what you're doing. And with that belief, just wanting to push forward and find the answer because you own it. And if you don't do it, nobody else is going to, mm -hmm. you know, nobody's working to step up to the little bankrupt company and help prove the world wrong. That, that we got to do on our own. And now we do it with 900 people around the country. And it's, pretty powerful. So you have 900 people. You're also a, you're both a customer facing company. 
you're also and a tech company. I would assume that dealing with biometrics, you're you, you're you're growing your own uh, tech stack to be able to be the identity layer for people, uh, physical identity layer. How do you manage um, a company that has such different workforces? That has been a big change, right? I think there's a pretty uh, homogeneous workforce on Wall Street, you know, at an asset management firm. Having an engineering team that is half of our New York office, marketing, finance, operations, um, you know, corporate development, government relations, legal, it's people, it's all different. Um, I think making sure that we've threaded everyone on a common foundation of our values and really living them has been really important. At the end of the day, people are people. Um, but we did not have beer Fridays at Arians Capital, and, we, <laughs> and I was uh, I was hesitant at first. Um, but we have beer Fridays now, and they're fun. So, you know, at the end of the day, though, people have families, and people care about security, and they care about being future facing, and they care about being treated fairly, and they care about being pushed and developed and inspired and motivated. And I don't think it matters what department you're in. And we've had people switch departments and um, continue to grow. So it has been challenging. I'll have to say, like, could you say that again in civilian terms sometimes to some folks? But um, I think our values do really knit them together. One that says we obsess about the customer experience and that, you know, we care about great people. And then really proving that out. Um, I think people have been really pleasantly surprised by us living our values and really caring about making it a great place to work and listening to them. You know, different people have different perspectives, and so listening to them and trying to implement that. And how do you do that? How do you make sure that you're hearing what the engineering team's marketing, frontline, customers? What he- Hearing and then leading. What, yeah. What's your management style to be sure that those values are getting integrated into the way they approach work? So um, I think leading by example is important. So for instance, we just moved into new offices in September where we built some offices and then had a big open floor. And we recently took down all the offices. There are no offices. There is no corner office anymore. So, you know, we're all out there together. Um, So you hear a lot then giving people feedback, being in touch with people, talking to people, getting to know people. Um, You know, we do surveys. And people walk in and say things after a while as they get to know you. So just being present, I don't, sometimes I don't think there's a secret beyond Mm -hmm. just being who you are. I'm a talker, Um, (laughs) chatty. Um, And we care about the customer experience and we're always trying to get better. And we've shown that through seven years of history. And there are people who've been there four and five years. There's a lot of people who've only been there for a year sharing stories. we have new hire lunches now once a month, and you know we share stories. Um, do you oversee the new hire lunch? I do. I lead the new hire lunch, uh-huh. and look, I regardless of what level they're coming in at. Oh yeah, yeah. We lead town halls out in airports. Last summer we did seven airports in three days. So you know you start in Seattle, then you go to San Francisco, then you go to Las Vegas, then you go to Denver, then you go to Dulles, and you listen to people. Um, you know, when we started, we had an outsourced call center, and we went to visit them in Westerville, Ohio, and we brought like you know clear glasses and T-shirts, and they said no company had ever been to come visit them. <laughs> so I know we were talking earlier, like you know I'm the granddaughter of an immigrant who came here with no education and started a hardware store in Brooklyn. I think you know where you come from, and you know how people treated 
you know, my grandfather and how I would want to be treated and how I want to treat other people. So, you know, we're constantly looking for feedback and we act on it or we don't act on it and we'll tell you why we don't act on it. You know, that's a that's an interesting idea, but here's why we're not going to move forward with that. So I don't know how to do anything different. You know, I'm, I'm pretty busy. I can't be someone that I'm not. So I can also be, you know, a little bit hyper and mm -hmm. it is what it is. But you've been the CEO of an, you know, an operator for exactly one company. So it sounds like you very much lead by instinct and gut and by example. Well, but is there, have there been lessons that you've taken away from other well, education? Well, first of all, I think it's really humbling, right? I mean, if you look at our board of directors, we have former CEOs that I used to invest with on the other side when I was an investor. So uh, the chairman of Priceline, Jeff Boyd, who he was the CEO turning Priceline around from six to mm. 1500, um, the CEO of FlowServe. And, uh, and so Bill Miller, who has been a long time a strategic partner of mine, I've gone to you know the Ed Breens and to other people like that to get feedback and insight, and I'm always learning great lessons from them. So I think that's really important. I I'm pretty confident that I know a lot less than I need to know, and so I'm always learning. Um, so I get lessons from those people, um, learning from the Dennis Kozlowski's and the Bernie Ebers, who you know blew up companies and went mm -hmm. to prison. Um, it's pretty amazing to watch that happen and unfold as well. Um, and then watching someone like Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs, where as an investor, you have a front row seat to those people. You know, I went to Macworld at the Javits Center and 20 p investors showed up in the basement for Steve Jobs in, I think it was 2000. And to be there and to see that, to see signs that said five down, 95 to go on their market share, which was their market share in their conference rooms, is to know the art of the possible and to believe the art of the possible. To watch Amazon, everyone said it was, not everyone, but lots of people said it was going to zero. You see that stock go from 120 to, did it go to six? You see the art of the possible. You know to be the X among the O's. I mean, that's how I've lived my life. I was a poli-sci major at the University of Michigan. Um, you know, nobody plots out a course for you from there. And so, you know, the underdog is, a, as I like to say, happiness is a low bar. What's lower than bankruptcy? <laughs> <laughs> How do you think about growing a company that has so much reliance or interaction with the government? Uh, the people you just listed, a lot of them built massive consumer companies based on having people love what they do, but they haven't had to interact with the government. I would assume that a big part of your company's uh, success depends on airports welcoming you in, towns saying you need to be a part of it, people that own stadiums saying we want you to be in. What's that like? So start with both my parents work for the government. So I'm from Washington, D.C., a suburb outside of it originally. So I felt like I knew the government well. Um, you know, I think that if you bring value to people that ultimately, and ultimately could be four or five or six years later, um, they will welcome you in. And so we just kept coming back. It's like they were like, you're back again. I was like, oh, yeah, let us update you. Let us tell you what we're doing. We just launched our third airport, our fourth airport. Look, customers are tweeting about us. They want us here. So, so um, the secret to working with government is just resiliency. <laughs> Look, I ultimately believe that right wins. This technology, this innovation makes a tremendous amount of sense. And innovation is about bringing people what they did not know they wanted. Right? I don't think people are waking up in the morning going like, I want myself some biometric security today. Um, but what people do want is better lives, faster lives, more secure lives, 
being more productive, being less stressed. That's what they want, and we bring that to them, and then they recognize it, right? Our NPS scores double, our net promoter scores, from the first use to the fourth use, because you enroll and you're like, hmm, and then your fourth use, it's your habit. And so I think that the power of working with government is showing that what you're doing is right and is good and is secure and is creating value for their constituents, their constituents you know, in a city and in the country. And everything you read about public-private partnerships, homeland security, it is a strong secular trend. Unfortunately, I say this as a neurotic paranoid mother of three, the world is not getting safer. That is the world we live in. So what are we going to do about it? When people just sort of resign themselves to so like, I don't know, it's going to be what it's going to be, or it makes me crazy. People are like, what's going to happen here? Well, what can we do to make sure it doesn't? What can we do to make sure there isn't another 9-11? Who wants to leave that world to their children? So being part of the solution and being driven by that is, is honest and is important. And I think ultimately it resonates. And then ultimately, it's people speak for themselves. You know, we create hundreds of jobs in cities. We pay cities a percentage of our revenue. We are sharing back with them. We're delighting their travelers and we're strengthening security. And if you say that enough times and it's true, it resonates. And so, then thought leaders adopt it. And it's that sort of, you know, snowball effect. So it is part of your motivation, not just, you know, building an incredibly successful company, but it, you sound very patriotic. Um, I am. I, I Look, I... Uh, you know, I come from a, a suburb in Maryland where, like, people did have flags on their lawns, and you know, we did do the Pledge of Allegiance every day. And I went to public school, and uh, yeah, you know, I think this is a pretty special country, and you want to be part of making it better for the next generation. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. We are excited to stand in less lines. We share that passion. Karen Seidenbecker, thanks so much for coming in, sharing your history experiences. Uh, and we look forward to your future successes. Thanks for having me. Send us any of your comments on Twitter, LinkedIn, or email us, btmshow at icloud.com. We'll be right back for the wrap up. Breaking the Mold wants your feedback. Please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. Dan, we're back. Breaking the Mold, episode 16, just concluded our fascinating walk through Karen Seidman Becker's background, the business. What'd you think? I thought that it was, I would not have expected that kind of scope for the business. Right. That what she sees is not just, hey, we're going to have a better security line, but this is your security. This is the, your persona uh, everywhere that you want to be. And, it is, and, and, and don't it's you very feel, expansive. It's expansive, and don't you feel like that's a very current way of kind of describing oh, yeah. your business that you you look back and you say okay well Am- it worked for Amazon they're not just a they're not selling books they're an online marketplace that's right or uh, the CEO of Casper who's an online mattress company not talking about the fact they sell mattresses but they sell consumer experiences and it's going to be the next great consumer brand it's like it's what you need it needs to be your vernacular so that you can have a business that's worth more if it's just you know, singular That's about right. one product line, one aspect. I mean, clears what she said often. I mean, it's so much bigger than just, yeah, speeding your way through airports. By the way, I think this goes back to what we started the entire podcast with, which mm-hmm. is what do you think you're going to have a better, what do you think you're going to do better in terms of hiring, 
Mm -hmm. retaining talent if you are a company that does one specific thing or if you were a company that is everywhere sure opening speeding through speeding speeding up your world and giving you a comfort that you have security wherever you are i think it's even more than that it's what what employee doesn't want to feel like they're doing more than just going for a paycheck that right. they're they're making a difference they're they're part of a company that's changing the world that's you right. know oh i'm giving my you know my my customers i'm delighting my customers and giving them you know the time that they would have lost over their life standing right. in lines yeah. like that's something you get excited about and you want to be led and that's that's better than sort of describing in the most banal way which is really actually what the company does how do you um I think the one I, I, I told, I, when she started talking when, when Karen was talking about the idea of using clear as a way to get into buildings and to get into concerts, all of that was like actually that's that would be super handy. Yeah, I, I think I like my that. question I would have for them is this just seems like the kind of business that the government decides it's going to do itself. Yeah. And I wonder how you draw those lines, how you how you're able to stay away from that, or maybe government never does because it can't move fast no, enough or, or it doesn't or do it well. I, I think in from what. It was interesting to have Karen's perspective on working with government. I'm not sure it matters. Yeah. Like she's got this approach that clearly has worked. Clear. Clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That and she's done that because I don't know, I, I I didn't think it was just coincidence that both of her parents worked for the government. I didn't think it was just coincidence that she grew up in DC. Like I think that and was a poli sci major. Mm-hmm. Like I actually think it takes to be successful in this business and also as a hedge fund manager, she invested a lot in defense industries, which right. clearly, from that perspective, understood how you get a government contract. Like, I don't, that's probably her edge. I'd actually wouldn't bet against Clear in any market that right now you have to deal with the bureaucracy and red tape of a government. I personally wouldn't have the patience or the tolerance for it. And I wonder how much of what gives her that appreciation for it is what she said about her patriotism mm-hmm. and 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 even think about this she said that like what motivated her to start something other than the hedge fund was 911 yeah that that wasn't i mean how you you hear I, I i can't think of another ceo who that i heard that from i've heard it from people who've decided to then go be a marine you know go be a seal but not to go be the ceo of uh you know of a security company well, the the other part that i think relates back to the government is she made a very clear point that it's all people that mm-hmm. relating to people is really important, and that when you're dealing with federal or state or city agencies, there there are people inside, and getting to know them, and bringing them gear, and talking to them, and understanding what they are trying to achieve, and how you can help them achieve their own goals. You know, these are all the motivations are the same, whether you're in private or public sector. It seems like that's a theme we've covered here on Breaking the Mold. That's right. Thank you all. We appreciate, of course, everybody listening. Uh, we will uh, be back very soon. We are, uh, we are Evan Roth. We are, we are Evan Roth, and you are. <laughs> oh, is that the? <laughs> I didn't realize where you were going with that. I thought you were talking when we were going to come back. Sorry. Sorry. Let's try that part again. You know what? I, what I did with that? I actually I pivoted. I pivoted. Okay, I, were, okay. I was going to go when we were going to come back, and then I was going to also make a point. We're going to be come back more often. I was like, I don't really want to do that. So then I just changed it to Got who it. we are. I see. Yeah. Right. And then, but you 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 missed that cue. <laughs> I did not get the cue. <laughs> I want to thank Karen Simon Becker for joining us here on the show today, and we look forward to hearing from you. That's Evan Roth breaking the mold host along with. Guest co-host Daniel Roth, long-standing guest co-host at this point. I think I can say yes, long-standing. We look forward to hearing from you. Talk soon.
You've been listening to Breaking the Mold. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at BTM Show, through email at btmshow at icloud.com, and at our iTunes show page. Breaking the Mold is recorded at Mixopolis in New York City. 